1: It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. As we creep a little bit closer to opening day and a little bit closer to some fun, fake baseball games. Welcome to Rico Bronia. Let's start with Manny Machado. Let's get that crap out of the way, because quite frankly, I don't want to spend that much time talking about guys that aren't going to be on the 2023 New York Mets, but we'll address Manny Machado out of the gate. We'll go through the other news and notes from Met Camp over the last few days. And then we'll actually give a lot of time to the schedule because it is a brand new schedule. Obviously, we have balanced it out a little bit, not as many games inside the division. A weird start to the schedule. You probably haven't taken a deep look at it. We'll take a deeper look at this Mets schedule a little bit later on in the pod. But we'll start off with Machado, who pulled into Grom. Let's face it. He pulled a Jacob deGrom. He announced in spring training his intentions. He called a shot that he's going to opt out at the end of the season. Not that that's a surprise. I think we all figured with six years, a buck 80 left on his deal, that there was a shot that Manny Machado would opt out. And I remember when the Correa signing fell through, there was that, oh, don't worry, we could always sign Manny kind of feeling. I felt what happened over the last few days with Machado was fascinating from this regard. Manny went to the Padres and said, I'm going to opt out. Let's talk about a new deal now, because if we don't make a deal now, I'm going to have a self-imposed deadline, not opening day the way Aaron Judge did, but the beginning of spring training. And apparently the Padres made no offer until the final few days before this made up deadline occurred. And they decided, "Okay, we'll offer you a five year extension at a buck 20 on top. Of the six year 180 that was left. So essentially, they were offering Manny Machado an 11 year, three, 280, 11 year 280, something in that regard, uh, for him to kind of extend his deal. Which I guess when you compare it to what Xander Bogart's got and compare it to what Correa initially got, and obviously the older contract with Lindor and the more recent contract with Turner, and you Obviously, see Manny's resume, which is very good. It wasn't an amazing offer. You know, if you think about it, I mean, logic would tell you if Machado has another big season going into free agency, even though he's a little bit older, because he's going to be 31 in the middle of July. So he would go into free agency as a 31- into 32-year-old baseball player. But a guy who's you know, he's elite, let's face it, he was second in the MVP voting. Uh, he had a couple of other top-five finishes, And the best part about Manny Machado is that he plays every day, every single day, 150 games last year, 153 games the year before he played all 60 in the 60 game season, a buck 56 the year before that, a buck 62 the year before that he is an iron man when you really think about it. So that's a part of the value that Machado has that even though he is 30, 31 years old, 31, 32 in a free agency, you can rely on the fact that he's going to be healthy. Uh, I think the Padre offer shows you that they like him back, but at their price. And considering that Juan Soto for them is a free agent in two years, and considering they just paid Bogarts and they just paid you Darvish with a new extension. I think it's very possible Manny Machado leaves. And what I would say is he's in the mix. He's in that mix of elite level free agents. The Mets may target at the end of the year, but the reason I don't want to get too crazy thinking about it is what if Brett Beatty, makes this team and let's say wins rookie of the year, right? Let's say Brett Beatty turns into a star. Doesn't that kind of change the need for Manny Machado? A little bit. Obviously, Beatty could always switch positions. So it, I, I find the whole story interesting just because of kind of looking at what the Padres decided not to do and how aggressive they were in trying to keep them. But so much can happen between now and the offseason. I also don't think it's an option that the Padres would trade him. The Padres are a championship contending team. When you look at the National League and you look at the true contenders in this league, you have the Dodgers, you have the Braves, you have the Mets, you have the Phillies, you have the Padres. I mean, it's really kind of the same customers from a year ago. So even if San Diego isn't ultra serious about bringing him back and you want to look at this five-year 120 extension offer as a low ball offer, I think the Padres are going all in. And the only way Machado hits the trade market is if somehow they have like a colossal failure of a season. And by the way, Fernando Tatis too, when I talk about all the long-term contracts the Padres have committed, I don't want to forget that too. So from afar, it's interesting, but I think for us as Met fans, let's see where we are at the end of this season. It could very well be with a parade. Probably won't be. Probably will be with disappointment, but a lot can happen between now and the offseason. That's my view on Manny Machado. I know Hoffman was already drooling about him. I've been I just, drooling
0: about him for, for for years. What are you talking about? Just just right now? And let me just say something. I, I We had a conversation, and uh, there's a co-worker of ours. I won't say his name just yet because I'm not sure if he's uh, going to want to come out with it. But he's putting the odds at the San Diego Padres as, as winning the, the World Series because he thinks this team is going to basically fall apart after this year. They're going all in this year, and that's it. So Manny Machado is not being traded. You're right. I, I totally agree with that. But Manny Machado would look good in in the blue and orange. So would Juan Soto. So would a lot of these guys. And I got to be honest, I think they're all looking at the money and seeing Steve Cohen. At the at the least, will jack up their price tag, so that's why they want to hit the open market. If you're telling me Brett Beatty is going to turn into something special, does that change my mind on Machado? No, I still want Manny Machado.
1: <laughs> yeah, because you can always stick Beatty in left field. hundred <laughs> no, percent. Hey, there's a DH, my friend. There's a DH. <laughs> yeah, I think what opens up Manny Machado's eyes to why it's so obvious to opt out is all these contracts that were being handed out, these mega. Long term deals. It wasn't even the the amount of money that, like a guy, his teammate, Xander Bogart's got. It's not the amount of money that Xander Bogart's got. It's the years these guys are getting. So if you're Manny Machado, who is still relatively young, he's 30 years old, and you only have six years left on your deal, which is what he would have after this opt out. I think he's looking at it saying, I could get 12, I could get 11, I can get. So I don't even think it's how much per year more than it is. Look at the amount of years these other guys are getting. And again, to Manny Machado's credit, I think this is one of the most impressive stats that he possesses. Since he came into the big leagues, he has played 150 games in every single season, but one. And I'm not including 2020 because to me, that's essentially playing a buck 50. He played every game. He played every game in the 60 game season. That's, That's playing every day. So the best quality of Machado that not a lot of guys have is he goes out there and he plays every single day. As far as the rest of Met Camp is concerned, what I took from Billy Epler the other day and the way he talked about Alvarez and the way he talked about Beatty and Vientos and Mauricio is he put a big emphasis on defense. A very, very big emphasis on Alvarez will be here when he's ready to catch most of the time. The problem with that, is they signed Omar Narvaez. We know how good Tomas Nito is defensively. How much per week would Alvarez need to catch for Billy Epler and Buck Showalter say that's worth it? That's enough. So even if they feel he's ready defensively, they come out of camp really impressed and say, boy, he's made a lot of progress. We think he can catch this veteran staff. What does that mean? And what does the number have to look like? Because they want to continue to develop him as a catcher, which I think we all agree with. We want him to be the long-term catcher. And so calling him up and exclusively having him DH is not the greatest option in the world. I'd be the first to admit it. My suggestion during the offseason was he does both. He DHs against lefties. Or DHs against righties, I guess, but really against lefties since they don't have that same alternative at designated hitter. And then you catch him twice a week. Is that going to be enough though? Like if they feel he's advanced enough where he can catch at the major league level, what's the amount of games per week that would satisfy them? Tomas Nito, and I love the guy, can be a true backup. Like he doesn't need to catch multiple days a week. We already know what Tomas Nito is. Narvaez is a little bit more intriguing because he can give you a little bit more offensively. So if you play six games in a given week, are we good? Are the Mets good? With Omar Narvaez catching three of them, Alvarez catching two of them, Nito catching one of them, and then maybe a few more days outside of that where Alvarez is your designated hitter. That's the question that I would push Billy Epler on. I I totally get and respect that they want to develop this kid as a catcher and they don't want to call him up and never have him catch and, and all that. But what's that number? where they'd feel comfortable because they may need his bat. Let's be perfectly honest. Well,
0: well here's something that really we've talked – I think I mentioned once was the fact is if you, you have Omar Navarez there, if you split time between him and Alvarez, right? And Nito is kind of the third-string catcher. But here here, be here. You can have Alvarez start games and do the one-on-one with the starting pitcher and then later innings for defensive purpose, you can bring Nito in, in like the crunch time situations, but still have that D, someone come in to bat for that DH spot, or bat for the catching role, whatever, whatever the, the case is, so that Nito's – because the thing is, Nito's bat doesn't play as well as we'd like it to, but Alvarez isn't really perfect behind the dish. And if you're worried about defense at the late time of the game, that's where Nito can come in for the two, three innings that's needed and still have somebody bat – if there's a crunch time situation, that's the way I look at it.
1: If they're willing to, if they're willing to do that with him, that's the question when it comes to the development of Francisco Alvarez as a catcher, I think early in this season, because look, let's all be honest. He's not making the team, you know, barring injury, obviously injuries can change everything, but barring injury, he's not going to make the team. So I'm not even worried about April. I'm not even worried about that. It's more, okay. It's May 10th. Alvarez is tearing it up at triple a. We think he's making progress defensively because there's no way really for us to know. We're not looking at what Billy Epler is looking at and what he's hearing from his scouts and from the manager down there and from the coaches down there. What's the eventual role this season for him? Will they handle him in the way you just described? I I like the versatility of three catchers and and we're going to spend more time on this on the podcast uh, later in the week. We're going to go deeper into the roster construction. I'm, I'm in a losing battle here. I would love to have five position players on my bench, even six. And they can't because every team wants to have so many bullpen arms. They want to have eight relievers. Well, do the math. If you have eight relievers and you have your five starters, that's 13 pitchers, which is, by the way, the most you're allowed to carry. There's new rules roster wise that was set up a few years ago. It's not like you can have 14 pitchers. You have 13 pitchers. That leaves you with 13 position players on your roster, nine of which are starting. So that only leads four guys off your bench. I'd love to have five. And when you have five, it makes more sense to have a third catcher. And so I think a part of the issue they're going to run into, and we'll spend more time on this next week, is if the Mets are going to be firm on only having 13 pitchers. That's it. We're not going 12. We're going 13. It doesn't leave you a lot of space. It doesn't leave you a lot of room. As far as Beatty, it was, it was interesting, too, because I think I'm more passionate about Beatty making this team than Alvarez. And I'll tell you why. I think there's more room to play him. I think there's more possibilities on how to play him. The one negative on Alvarez versus Beatty, where Alvarez I could see being someone everyone prefers, is that they are weaker against left-handed pitching. Their right-handed options are not nearly as good. Technically, Escobar's a right-handed option because he's better as a switch hitter batting right-handed. But Darren Ruff is still on this roster. Tommy Pham is on this roster. While from the left side, I know a lot of people don't love Daniel Vogelbach, but Daniel Vogelbach hits right-handed pitching. But what they said about Beatty, what Billy said about Beatty is it's about defense. And it's the same thing with Mark Vientos, that the key to these guys making this team is that they are going to have to see great progress from them defensively. And and again, that's much tougher for all of us sitting back to judge because other than just watching a spring training game and seeing if he makes a play or not, they're looking at a lot of other things, obviously. Uh, So I hope Beatty's gotten better defensively. I don't know if he has. I hope he has. Epler said he's seen improvement with his agility. So that's a good sign. But what I love about Beatty, if he can make this team, are a few possibilities. Number one, Eduardo Escobar, while he was great over the final two months of the season, he was a zero for the first half of the year. A zero. I don't know what the Mets are getting out of Eduardo Escobar. So right out of the gate, Beatty being the most of the time third baseman, gets a lot of at-bats against righties. The other option, even if Escobar's playing well, is the idea that Beatty can play third, Escobar can play second, and Jeff McNeil could play left field. The other option is Daniel Vogelback isn't hitting much. Beatty could be the DH. So I see like three different scenarios I just laid out, maybe four, where Beatty can get consistent at-bats early on in this season. But he's going to have to hit in spring training, but clearly he's going to have to show Billy and Bach that he's improved defensively. Viento's kind of the same thing. Like Epler, his exact quote was well, it's not an exact quote, I guess I'm going to paraphrase then, was you got to play defense to be on this roster. That defense is really, really important. And that was the answer last year why they hated Mark Vientos. That's what it comes down to. And Vientos is either going to play first base and he's going to play third base. Those are his only two avenues to play. Where, by the way, the Mets are okay. They've got Alonzo at first. back could play first base. They've got Escobar at third. They've got Guillaume, who could play third base. So. Vientos, to me, isn't playing positions. His best option is a right-handed DH because Darren Ruff stinks. But clearly, these guys are going to have to show a lot defensively to impress management to allow them to make the team. And right now, I'd say it's not likely. So the one thing I'm going to fight back on, and it's funny because a
0: lot of people uh, criticized Eduardo Escobar and I tried to defend him last year. But the reality is, is his glove was pretty crappy last year. It really was. It was, very, it was. it was questionable at best. So, yeah, Brett Beatty came in, and he looked a little raw. No, He didn't make players look comfortable, but he did the job. So if you're, like, saying, well, Beatty can't make the, the everyday roster because we need to play Escobar because he's, he's got a gold glove, I think that's false narratives.
1: Yeah. Look, and Luis Guillerme is going to be on this roster. He's one of those roster locks where he may play a lot, especially if he's hot like we saw last year, but – He's so brilliant defensively at third and second that I think you can cover up the these issues. Like if Brett Beatty is tearing up spring training, and you're right, like he didn't look great defensively last year, Guillerme is a late-inning defensive replacement. So while I understand that defense matters and defense is important and you want Beatty to get better defensively, like you kind of said with Alvarez, you can do the same, but you can cover it up a little bit. It's just, it's going to be frustrating to get to opening day, Pete, and not have any of these young bats on the roster. And we're staring that as a legitimate possibility because one of the points I made during this offseason on why, hey, the Met offense will be better, even though they really haven't done anything to improve it. You know, signing Tommy Pham, great. Omar Narvaez, fantastic. They haven't really made that kind of game-changing move was Beatty and Alvarez. Well, those guys can be the difference. Well, we're starting to see here in late February that both guys are going to have an uphill battle to make this team. Okay, fine. If we accept that, they're not going to make the team. When and how are they getting here then? Barring injury, which is the way guys normally get here. But if there is no injury, what's the avenue where we're going to see these guys? Because they're top major league prospects. And at some point, you got to let them play. So I, I have the first
0: solution. Darren Ruff is gonna be terrible April and May, and eventually he's gonna find his way cut. So they're gonna that that's how the first guy's gonna get called up. No question. Uh Darren Ruff will eventually say, see you later, whether he gets traded or whatever the case is. But then here's the thing is, and I, we talked about this with the pitching rotation too. The depth that the pitching rotation has, because we don't I don't see Verlander and Scherzer and everyone Pitching thirty plus games, they are going to play twenty, pitch 25, 26 games. There's going to be openings for the 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 the, the depth of the rotation. The, the the these the seventh and eighth guys like Lucchese and the the McGill's of the world. They're going to see innings. That's the same. That's going to be the same thing with Alvarez because or or Beatty because guys are going to get hurt. Not listen. It's it's impossible these days to go one sixty two. Look at St- look at Stally Marte. Did we? Did you hear? Did you hear what happened with Staley Marte? Did we didn't yes. even get into it yet?
1: Yes. He pulled full I know. <laughs> and he played in the playoffs with, I think he described it as 100% pain. Yes. So, <laughs> no, I look, th- that is probably the answer. It's not the answer we want because nobody wants to, to see guys get hurt. But you're right. Guys will get hurt. And that's how the opportunity eventually will come about. Presented by
0: T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile.
1: Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. It's just frustrating to think that coming into this season, it is very likely that Beatty, Alvarez, Vientos are all in the minor leagues. That That's just the way it's looking right now. Obviously, things can change, but that's the feeling you get here in late February.
0: I, I agree, but I, and I do want to just say, counter, you said you think Beatty's got the best shot to get in there. I do still think it's Alvarez. I think that the Varez... Uh, I don't see this spectacular bat from Navarez. And I do see that they're going to from the catcher position, eventually it's going to hit where it's like, we don't have enough from DH and we don't have enough from catcher still. We're going to have to find a way to get Alvarez some at
1: bats. Yeah. We'll make a bet then let's make a bet. Who's on the major league roster first. Now, obviously injury could kind of cheapen this a little bit, but I would go. Beatty is on this team before Francisco Alvarez this season, much like last year. So you're officially going Alvarez. I'll go Beatty. We'll find out who wins. Sounds good. I'm I'm we locked have, and loaded. We have a few bets going. I think the other bet was Darren Ruff. In my opinion, is not on the opening day roster, and you think he is. So, oh no, no doubt. Billy Epler. I, I've yeah. talked to him about,
0: about this about this already. He said locked and loaded. Billy Epler as the uh, the DH against left-handed bats, uh, left-handed uh, hitters.
1: Darren Take Ruff. Him. Darren, not Billy Epler. Billy Epler ain't I, DHing though. No. I probably prefer that over Darren Ruff. <laughs> The the other thing that was interesting was Ronnie Mauricio. Now, I don't picture necessarily Mauricio having an impact, a big impact this season, maybe as a trade chip, but more so in 2024. He is still going to play shortstop. And that's what I find interesting because he's blocked. He's not going to be a shortstop with the New York Mets. His long-term evolution or elevation to the major league roster is going to involve him playing a different position. Maybe it's third base. Maybe it's left field. I don't know. Maybe it's on a, in another organization, obviously. That's certainly a possibility that he is used as a chip before the trade deadline. But Mauricio had a tremendous run in Winter Bowl. He is getting closer and closer to the major league level. And the more he plays shortstop, the more I would say as a Met fan, where's his road to the major league roster? Because, again, barring an injury to, to Lindor, which could happen, and that's another revelation we had that Lindor was hurt for the final month of the season and eventually needed to get a, an appendectomy. Is that what he needed? Something like that? Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. He could barely move. They checked his appendix, and finally, that's what he needed like a week after the season ended. But barring an injury to Lindor, Mauricio is not playing a position that makes him conducive to helping the Mets at all in 2023. So I was waiting for Billy to unveil the plan. Well, we're going to play him a little bit of third. We're going to play him a little bit left. We're going to get him accustomed to being an outfielder. We had even mentioned during the offseason with the the uncertainty of Nimo, Hey, maybe Mauricio could learn center field. So I'm waiting for the, the move. The move for Mauricio to learn another position so that we can start to throw him into the mix as the guy who could come up here and help this team sooner rather than later.
0: I mean, is there a possibility, and I know this is far, far away, because I, I, I heard how, how he killed it in uh, Winter Ball. Mauricio. Was it Winter Ball or Dominican? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dominican,
1: uh, in Winter Ball, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So the fact is, is there a possibility that they're planning Mauricio to take over a shortstop and eventually move Lindor to like third base and like that, or get no. that flexibility where Mauricio could play every position in the world and just give more. Here's the thing about today's baseball player. It's not just a, hey, your first base and that's it. You're shortstop and that's it. They, they want more like utility players to be able to, to mix and match all over
1: the ballpark. No, that's great. But then he's got to learn other positions. Like, if Ronnie Mauricio is going to become, you know, Ben Zobrist in 2024, that's great. He's got to play positions other than shortstop. Lindor's the shortstop. Lindor is going to be the shortstop for a very, very, very long time. He's not moving positions. I think it says to me two things. Number one, they're keeping his value high because I do think that shortstop prospects are just naturally going to have more value than a left field prospect. So you continue to enhance his value as a trade chip. And then B, The Mets and Billy Epler are showing us something because we're still learning about this regime. It's relatively new. They are not rushing prospects. They are not calling guys up quickly. So they have zero plans for Ronnie Mauricio to make any impact in 2023. Obviously, injuries can change that, but I think they look at him more as 24, maybe 25 even. And so they don't feel like there's a rush to move him off of shortstop. Uh, Mark Canna said something interesting on Sunday. He said he bulked up during the offseason and wants to hit more home runs. God bless you, Mark Canna, because the Mets could use it. (laughs) I mean, if there's the Mets (laughs) scored the fifth most runs in Major League Baseball last year, and that's fine. That was a good number. They did not hit enough home runs. Mark Canna was very down. When it comes to home runs remember here is home run totals in 2019 in playing just 126 games. He hit 26 home runs, 26. And that's only in a buck 26. The year before that, his first full year really in the major leagues, he hit 17 home runs in 122 games. So you're looking at a guy that over a full season should hit 20 to 25 home runs, 2020. You got to throw out at such a short year, 2021 his final year in Oakland before he came to the Mets, hit 17 home runs in 141 games. This year, the past year, 2022, he only hit 13 home runs, which is the fewest home runs he's hit in any kind of full season. So while Cano wasn't bad by any stretch, he was a good man. He certainly had his moments. I think his most infamous moment with the Mets was actually a home run, the home run with the bat flip against the Philadelphia Phillies, and he got on base a lot. He made contact. He, he was fine last year. I don't think Mark Canna was a bad met. We did get false advertisement on the home runs. He should have hit more than 13. So when I hear Mark Canna say, yeah, I want to hit more home runs, my response is, you're damn effing right you should. You know I, I'm not asking you to hit 40. I'm asking you to hit, let's say, 20. So if you tack on seven more home runs, I don't know. That's a big deal. That's a big deal to this offense. An offense that needs home runs. So it is spring training. Everybody's in the best shape of their life. I totally get that. I liked hearing Mark Canna tell us what the truth is, which is I should hit more home runs and I plan on hitting more home runs. As long as he
0: does not change his approach to the plate, because that's the one thing that was huge with him. It's like it's almost like the Nimmo effect on the right side. He saw a lot of pitches. He was able to get bat on ball a lot. And there was one at bat where it wasn't – I don't believe it went led to a home run. I think it just led to a, like a base hit. But I, I think it either tied the game or took the lead or whatever the case is, all because he fouled off a ton of pitches. And all right. because he, he wouldn't strike out. And that's the mentality that I need. So if he's going to say, all right, I, I bulked up. We need to get some more – I got some more power because I want to hit some balls on the fence, that's great. But if, it,
1: if if he strikes
0: out more now –
1: uh, it's not going to be good. So so here's what's interesting about that. In 2021 and 2022, it's a, it's a good comparison because it's one year to the next, but he played the same amount of games. So we don't have to kind of do mental gymnastics and trying to figure out the numbers. He played the same amount of games, but 141 games in 2021. He played 140 games last year with the Mets. And we saw two different Marcanas. With Oakland, he hit just 230. With the Mets, he had 266. So a 35-point increase in terms of batting average. But his on-base percentage did not go up the way it should have, considering his average was up 30 points, mainly because he walked far less. With the Mets this past year, he walked 48 times. With Oakland, 77 times, which is a big number. I mean, 30 more walks in the same amount of games. But to your point, he struck out 31 more times. He struck out 128 times with Oakland, 97 with the Mets. He got hit the same amount of times, drove in the exact same amount of runs, 61, but he hit 17 home runs in 21. He hit just 13 home runs last year. And the OPS is very similar 746 with Oakland, 770 with the Mets. So it's almost like take your pick. You get more walks, more strikeouts, and more home runs with Oakland Marcana, you get fewer home runs. Fewer strikeouts, fewer walks, but a higher batting average with Mets Mark Canna. So, which one would you rather have, Pete?
0: If it's going to lead to game-winning hits, I want the guy that's going to hit make most contact. And that's something that we're going to see a lot. Now, with the, with the whole rule change, with the shift not being there, I think a lot of hits are going to scrape through. So, I prefer the more contact Mark Cannon.
1: I also prefer the Mark Hanna from 2019 who had 26 home runs and had a 913 OPS. So I mean, come hitting... on. What do you ask you for everything now? you gluttonous? Come on. <laughs> but, but Mark Canna, to me, I direct and I, I put together with Beatty because if Mark Hanna is not producing at a high level, the option of who plays left field is Jeff McNeil. It's not as much Tommy Pham. Uh, it's not Khalil Lee, more on him, as he's off the 40-man roster and won't even be at Met camp and probably shouldn't even be in camp at all. I think the Mets almost feel obligated for him to be there as he's being investigated for domestic violence. But the Mets don't have a lot of outfield depth. Their outfield depth is from guys who can play the outfield like Jeff McNeil. So if Mark is not hitting, the way I envision it is that opens up a chance for Brett Beatty. You could also argue it opens up a chance for Luis Guillerme, where Luis plays second and McNeil plays left, and that's 1,000% an option. Now you also have to factor in Starling Marte not being healthy. Starling Marte, as you mentioned earlier, admitted that he had both groins bothering him, needed to have surgery during the offseason. He expects to be ready for opening day, but Marte is going to be one of those guys that you cannot run out every single day. I don't think he can. I don't think he can at his age. I don't think you can with his injury history. I think you need to be careful with him, which again creates the question. Okay, he's not playing. Who is? Beatty. Not as an outfielder. If the Mets aren't comfortable moving Beatty to the outfield because they want him to learn third, that's fine. McNeil can play the outfield. Guillaume can play second. Escobar can play second. They have the ability to fix their outfield depth issues by using a lot of Jeff McNeil in the outfield which creates at-bats for Brett Beatty and Luis Guillerme. Hence, why I am rooting more than anything else during spring training besides health for Brett Beatty to tear it up and make this freaking team. Get, get, why is Jeff McNeil in the outfield? That? Like, we've seen him before, but its is it very Daniel Murphy-esque
0: or is it better than that? Oh, he's fine in the
1: Jeff McNeil's not a gold Glover in the
0: outfield, we're, we're, but he's we're, we're fought But like, here's the problem, though. And and listen, what? I'm not one for the analytics. I'm not looking for, for a gold glove. But are we really moving Jeff McNeil out to outfield because, hey, that gives us an extra spot to put uh, Guillaume at second and somebody else at third? Dude,
1: I, they don't have any outfielders. <laughs> no, it's not that, my fault. That's Apple's fault. Bro, they've got five outfielders on the 40-man roster. They've got Mark Canna, who we just said we may bench. Brandon Nimmo, God willing, he's healthy for a second straight year. Starling Marte, who just had both groins examined, Darren Ruff, if you want to call him an outfielder, and Tommy Pham. That's it. Those are the outfield. Now, they have Tim Castro coming to spring training, so they've got other options, but they don't have a lot of outfield depth. So the only way to, to, to kind of handle that is by having a guy like Jeff McNeil play the outfield because they don't have other options. Like, who, uh, who the hell do you want playing the outfield that, on the no, days that, that- where Starling Marte's
0: off? But that's the problem. It's like, hey, let's put Jeff McNeil out there because we could, he could he could play a position, but that's like that's something you do in like little league, not in professional baseball. It's like I, I hope he can catch
1: a baseball. No, he's better than that. that's not fair. he's not is he better <laughs> at second base than left field? Yes, but I think he's an adequate defensive outfielder. that's how I'd kind of view McNeil He's not great. he's not amazing, but he's adequate and adequate to me is enough. Carlos Carrasco quarterback show Walter cut his finger cutting vegetables. And the buck made some kind of joke that uh, you wouldn't have that problem if he cut hot dogs. I don't know. Here's all I wanted to know when I heard that story: Is he going to miss time? That's all I wanted to know. <laughs> Is he missing a start? Is he missing two spring training starts? Is he missing a month? Does that mean David Peterson's in the rotation? And a lot was made over the last few days about Kode Senga. He had a bad bullpen session. Then he had a good bullpen session. I'm not judging Senga till I watch him. Even in spring training, like I'll judge him a little bit in spring training because we're actually watching the guy pitch. But outside of that. I can't get nuts about it. We will go deeper, though, into the breakdown of this roster uh, coming up on our next Rico. Let's get to this schedule because we have a major, major change in baseball this year. There's a lot of major changes. We've gone over the rules, but the schedule change. For many years, for almost two decades, 19 games against each divisional rival, that is being cut to 13. So six fewer games against the Braves, six less games against Philadelphia, against Washington, against Miami. and. Look, you could could twist that part of this any way you'd like. Obviously, the NL East is a very good division, but the Mets had great success against the NL East last year. The Mets beat the crap out of the Philadelphia Phillies. So as well as the Phillies ended up playing and going to the World Series, they suffered at the hands of the Mets. The Mets benefited, I guess, from the schedule. Played well against the Marlins. Played well against the Nationals. They were playing well against Atlanta until things obviously ended badly. The it's a cyclical thing. There are going to be some years in which the division's not going to be very good. And you're going to love those 19 games against really bad teams. And then obviously there are going to be years in which the division's loaded. So I'm kind of mixed about that. Uh, You're playing teams outside of your division in the same league, pretty much the same amount of times. The way it's been is you either play a team six or seven times. That's the way it's always worked. And, you know, you kind of forget how many times you're playing a team. Like, The Mets are playing the Cardinals seven times this season and the Pirates six times this season. They're playing the Dodgers six times. They're playing the Giants seven times. It's, it's basically the same. The big addition is this interleague play thing. And so I, first of all, I'm open-minded about this schedule. I don't have a strong opinion that it's awful quite yet. I think as a traditionalist, I don't love the fact that you're playing every single team every single year. And I do think it's the, kind of the free way to get us to radical realignment, which also scares me. So from that standpoint, I guess I don't like it. From a selfish standpoint, from a guy who likes to go see the Mets on the road standpoint, I think it's great that they're going to go to Boston every two years. I think it's great that they're going to go to Seattle every two years. So the, the fan fan in me really likes it. The baseball fan in me, the one that likes tradition, I don't love it. Now, I, teem- I tend to get crap. I got one email this week saying, Evan, how dare you call yourself a traditionalist? You like, I forget what I like, the pitch clock. Ah, it's like my politics. I can promise you, I'm not a conservative and I'm not a liberal. But if you hear certain things, you'll say, look at you, you pinky commie. Or look at you, you fascist conservative. It's about what issue you hear. So there are certain aspects of baseball that I'm a traditionalist on. And then there are certain aspects of baseball where I think I'm a a forward thinker. It goes back and forth. With this schedule, I don't know. That's where I'm at right now. I'm not sure if I'm going to like it or not. In terms of evaluating if it's good for the Mets or not, I don't even know how you do that. Because while the division is really good, The Mets beat up the Phillies last year. So I can't just naturally say, boy, it's great. They don't have to play the Phillies six more times. Last year, I wanted to play the Phillies 50 times. And then, you know, getting to play the Mariners and Texas and Oakland and Anaheim and Kansas City and Chicago, a lot of that is when you face a team, if they're healthy, so it, I don't think there is an advantage or a disadvantage that's obvious going into a season. You could try to frame it a certain way, but I just don't think it jumps out at you as this is going to benefit the Mets or this is going to hurt the Mets. I do think at some point I would like to get back to two divisions in each league. I thought the Major League Baseball was going to do that coming out of the lockout. And if that's the case, I do think having that unbalanced schedule would be important. You'd almost have like a separate league in that if there's eight teams in the National League East and you play those seven other teams a bunch of times, you would, in my opinion, determine how many playoff teams are based on there are three teams coming out of the NL East. There are three teams coming out of the NLS call today as opposed to there could be four from this division, there could be two from that division, but that's for a different podcast at a different time. What's your impression of this schedule? Do you like it? Are you indifferent like I am? Where are you?
0: So so first of all, here's the thing. We looked at like the Chicago Cubs last year as a team, not a very good team, but somehow they ruined the end of our season as well. So any team can, can show up at any time like we talked about. I'd like the fact that the Mets can actually test themselves against other teams throughout baseball at any time. I like the Mariners, for example, so I don't mind seeing how the Mets can face them and maybe it's a potential a uh, world series matchup you don't you don't know so I, i'm i'm so open to it all but again it's also the right time right time for it is everyone healthy are you going up against the dodgers team or a um or a, an angels team when you completely miss otani and whatever it's it's like i, I want there's matchups that you want to see you want to see much you talk about must see moments must see matchups like, you kind of have to have everyone available. And that's the, that's the one thing is just because you play them six or seven times doesn't mean you're going to be able to to see everybody. You're still going to yeah. miss somebody.
1: It, the, uh, looking at this Mets schedule, um, the things I don't like, and, and I, I don't mean this from it hurts the Mets or it helps the Mets, I just I don't like it, is winning the division still matters to a degree. We saw that last year. I would want to make divisional games, a lot of them, in September. I wouldn't want to have you be done with a team before you get to September. And that's the case this year between the New York Mets and the Atlanta Braves. As great as that series was, not for us, but in terms of trauma, it was great that the Mets and the Braves were lined up towards the end of the season. That's not the case this year. Now, the Mets are going to play the Philadelphia Phillies a lot. So if the Mets and Phillies are battling it out, they've got a bunch of games in September slash October. They've got three at Citi Field that closes the season. They got four in Philadelphia right before that. In fact, seven of the last 10 games the Mets play during the regular season is against the Philadelphia Phillies. And they also have a lot of games against the Marlins. So from that aspect, they got it right in that you're playing two of your divisional teams a lot at the end of the season, but not Atlanta. The last game the Mets play against the Atlanta Braves is August 23rd. Think about that. You still have a full month plus of regular season games, and the Mets and the Braves are going to be done with each other. Uh, Now, vice versa on this, the Mets don't play the Phillies for the first time until the end of May, until May 30th. So the Mets are going to play two months of baseball and not see the Phillies. Neither is ideal. In a perfect world, you're seeing your division in April and you're seeing your division in September. That That's how I would view it. And remember, because you're not facing a team 19 times, there aren't three visits to a divisional rival. There are two. So April and September, ideally. Um, that's how I would frame it. More so September than even April. Like, the Philly one bothers me less because, you know, okay, you don't see them in April. You don't see them most of May. But with the season on the line, assuming it is, you're going to see a lot of them. Seven of 10 games between the Mets and Phillies. By the way, not good for the Mets, considering Bryce Harper is supposed to miss the first half of the year. So you could argue that's not a good thing necessarily for the Mets, but I'm not viewing it in that prism, though I do want to explain it. I just don't like the fact that the Mets and the Braves are done on August 23rd. So the way that breaks down is they play late April uh, at City Field, they play in early June in Atlanta, they play in early August at City and then late August in Atlanta, and that's it. That's their season with the Braves. With Philadelphia, they play them at City Field May 30th to June 1st. They go to Philadelphia late June, and then they don't see them again until the end of the season. At Philadelphia, late September, home against the Phillies to close out the season September 29th to October 1st. I guess that's the part of the divisional schedule I don't like. Uh, I would want to see those teams late in the year. They open the year with a ton of games against Miami. Seven of the first 10 games of this season are against the Miami Marlins. I do like the fact that the Mets are not going to have to deal with rainouts at the start of the year. Four games in Miami. It may rain, but there's a dome. Three games in Milwaukee. It may snow, but there's a dome. And then when they come home, They'll probably have half the games rained out and snowed out and cold out. But at least when we are ready for baseball, when we finally get it on March 30th, barring a COVID outbreak, which doesn't happen anymore, that's basically gone. (laughs) The Mets are going to get to play seven straight games to start the season. They also have this interesting test right out of the gate. So they play these seven games on the road against Miami, Milwaukee. They play Miami and then San Diego. Uh, at home to open up the home year and then they play their longest road trip of the season. Their longest road trip of the season is a 10 game trip that goes three in Oakland, three in LA, four in San Francisco, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Geography wise, you're going from Oakland down to LA back up to San Francisco, but right out of the gate, right out of the gate, no messing around. You got yourself a 10-game road trip, and that's not going to be easy. The A's, we'll see, but it's early in the season, so you never know. Obviously, we know how dangerous L.A. is, and then four games against the San Francisco Giants. I'm telling you right now, telling you right now, and you can write this down, get me five and five on that trip, and I'm happy, all right? Just get me a a survival 10-game road trip against Oakland, L.A., and San Francisco, I'm good. Then we got the Yankee games, which – I don't even know why I'm mentioning it. Who cares about the Yankee games? Eh, it's into league play, sure. It's Subway Series. Uh, they're at City Field June 13th and 14th. Okay, great. And then they play him two at Yankee Stadium July 25th and 26th. I've said this before, and I'm probably in the minority on this. I'm all right with a Mets Yankees opening day. I think that would be such a, a celebration, excuse me, of New York baseball. I know they'll never do it because the Mets and the Yankees are going to sell out opening day no matter what, so it's almost like you're wasting a gate. But I think that would be kind of cool. Like right out of the gate after a long offseason, Mets-Yankees start the year. Let's go. How about this? Mets-Yankees to start the year, Mets-Yankees to close. No, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that. I don't want, I don't want Mets Yankees to close the season. That'd I mean, talk
0: about, inten- talk about intensity to finish the season. And that, that, that's one thing to get back to something you said. So like the Phillies, you know, you get to see them twice towards the end of the season, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's a weird schedule to me in September. Like, first of all, you're going from Anaheim's coming to town at the end of August. You got the Texas Rangers coming to town. It's Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. You you go to, you go to Washington, you, you go to Minnesota, you see Arizona at Cincinnati, and then the last 13 games, you're you're playing the Marlins and the Phillies. You're telling me you couldn't have found a way to put a Braves in there? Like, I, I, I see where you're a little upset by that. 13 games between two teams.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I, I – look, you don't know sometimes year to year how good a team's going to be. There's going to be a team this year that we expect to be really good that's not going to be really good, even in baseball where everybody thinks it's predictable, and vice versa. But you know the Mets and Braves coming off 101-win seasons are arch rivals. It just stinks that you got nothing with them in the final month. But think about what you just said. You were going through the September schedule. It is a very, on paper, I preface this, a very soft schedule. I mean, there are some potentially really mediocre to bad teams in that schedule. So they play the Braves in Atlanta, wrap up their season series. They play three games against the Angels at home, where Otani's probably gone because they stunk and they traded him to God knows where. Probably not our team. Three games against Texas. We'll see about Texas. Spent a lot of money. A lot to prove, though. Three games against Seattle. I think they should be good again. Washington, bad team. Minnesota, we'll see. Arizona mediocre team, Cincinnati bad team. And then the the trade off of Marlins Phillies, Marlins Phillies. That is a very maybe not as soft as the September from this year that backfired on the Mets. That's why I probably shouldn't even talk about soft schedule.
0: <laughs> and you know the Marlins be a pain in the ass. Like no matter what yeah. every season the Marlins at the end of the season, hell 2007-2008, we know this, they are
1: a pain in the ass. No, they are. They are. And and considering what happened in 2022, I shouldn't be talking trash about any bad team that's on the Mets' schedule because, well, we know what happens. <laughs> we, we know how quickly things can turn on that.
0: So I, I know you, you circle things in advance. You've seen something. Is there one specific series that's really like, oh, I, I'm looking forward to that?
1: I'm looking forward to going to Boston. I mean, really, and that's just, uh, you know, I'm a baseball fan. I mean, going to Fenway Park is really, really cool. I'm looking forward to taking my son to Fenway Park. He's never seen it. Jed is here right now. Are you excited to go to Boston? Yes. Yes. He says yes. <laughs> what about Baltimore? Do you want to go to Baltimore? Yeah? I hope so. Well, you're going. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> Only if you want to. I would never force you. But I, that's why when we talk about this schedule, I think, I'm biased in terms of it's cool to go to those cities. Like it's not, they're not stadiums. The Mets go to very often as far as an opponent and not thinking about going on a road trip. It's Texas. It's the idea of DeGrom. It's the idea that if Jake's healthy and we know that's a big caveat out of the gate, I'm not going to spend much time on that. I don't want to relitigate any DeGrom debates. I'll keep that to Twitter and Carton and Roberts are yelling at Sal all right, without doing it on the Rico, all right? Uh, but I do think that if DeGrom pitches, and that's the key here, and it's it's late August, so who knows, I think that's an event. I think that's a big deal outside of that. I mean, I don't know. I think, in a way, Pete, interleague play has sort of ruined this a little bit. You know, in the late 90s when it first started, I always thought it was so cool, like, oh, my God, it's Mets Red Sox. Oh, oh my God, it's even Mets Mariners. This is crazy. But nowadays, we've seen these matchups. And the excitement isn't the same to me.
0: This is why I, I know we're far away from it, but realignment is going to be a huge thing. Uh, I think expansion. I know that some people are like, why are you going to expand? You can't even sell the places that you're at right now. But I think adding two more teams, making it four in each division, just would make things so much better. And then you could either A – Kind of still have into league to be a fun piece where you just see a division like almost like football like NFL you just see you see the AFC this year uh, the AFC East this year next year you'll see the AFC West you know what I mean like th- that to me splits
1: up the the, the the leagues a little bit more and it makes it fun yeah speaking of fun I was thinking that we do a podcast before opening day not during the uh, rigors of the regular season discussing the possibilities of realignment uh radical realignment non-radical realignment because i don't think what we're looking at right now is permanent i don't i, I get this baseball is going through a transition feel to what we're going to look at over the next few years i do i do i don't think what we're witnessing is long term i don't call me crazy i think that I think that the schedule is going to look different. I think the playoff format is going to look different. I think the divisions are going to look different. I'm I'm sort of convinced it's going to be radical. I'm like leaning towards seeing that. Not that I want that, but seeing that. So it could be a worthy discussion. Benji Horowitz wrote an email earlier this week, and this is what made me laugh. I give Benji credit. He said, hey, Evan, I love the last pod despite a lot of disagreements. I find it funny that you call yourself a traditionalist and then immediately talked about how you like load management, (laughs) the pitch clock and resign to the fact that you might now enjoy the new balanced schedule. LOL. See, this is what I'm talking about. I am no longer a traditionalist because of those opinions, forgetting all the other traditionalist opinions I have. Uh, But to continue on Benji writes, I think baseball is approaching things the wrong way as usual there are more organic ways to address the issues a baseball faces rather than a timer on a timeless game and a schedule that makes divisions even less meaningful not to mention this playoff format as a travesty to the game in the wild card era a wild card has won the world series 25% of the time it's gotten absurd thanks for the content couple of things about this i only like "quote unquote load management" because i'm adjusting to what the sport is right That doesn't mean I like the fact that there are six playoff teams. I want to make that clear to Benji. We probably agree more than he realizes. But what I've learned is while I'll complain and I'll tell you my opinion, at some point I have to deal with it. You know what I mean? Like It would be as if I just came on every day and complained about the wild card. Well, it's it's here. Where I complained every day about the Manfred runner on second base. I may make digs at it, but it's here, so we have to evaluate it. You see what I'm saying? The DH is a great example. I never wanted the DH in the National League. But whenever we talk about the DH, I don't bring that up to Pete. I talk about the DH. Like, hey, Daniel Volkeback, maybe the DH. Vientos, because you have to just accept it. So I'm looking at what baseball is right now. I'm looking at what happened last year. And I'm giving you an opinion based on that that, hey, maybe load management makes a lot more sense than it ever would have. That's not me not being a traditionalist. It's it's me being realistic about what the game is right now. The pitch clock, Benji, I will fight you to my death on. (laughs) And I say that because I really believe, and I want Benji to be the guinea pig on this. I really believe, June 1st, write me back. You will admit the pitch clock was the best thing to happen to baseball. I believe that. I believe that strongly in my heart because, and this all started about 10 years ago when I started watching Met games on DVR and my dad did too. And we started to see the ridiculous amount of time between pitches. Sometimes when you're sitting there, you don't pick up on it and it got worse and worse and worse. And I think it needs to be stopped. I do. I haven't changed. Baseball changed. Okay. I, I didn't, I'm a, it's not like I'm different than I was in 1999 baseball is different than what it was in 1999. So for anybody out there, cause there's a lot of issues we're just never going to agree on. That's cool. But for the pitch clock, I am confident if you disagree with it, give me till June 1st, you will admit it's the best thing that ever happened. I really believe that. I think it's going to be the biggest change and best change baseball's ever had. So from that standpoint, I'm not a traditionalist. I guess. <laughs> And and then if you have an issue with the wild card,
0: you'll find out uh, sometime in late October when the Mets get swept in two games.
1: (laughs) And then we can play this stupid wild card. I didn't like when, when baseball invented the wild card in 1994 and then eventually it was used in 95. I didn't love it, but I was young. I didn't love that the division races seemed not to matter, that when the Yankees and Red Sox finished tied for first place in 2005, nobody cared. Because it was just, oh, Yankees got the tiebreaker. They'll play the Angels. The Red Sox will play the White Sox. It's like, what? Like there was no difference necessarily between winning the division and not. When they added the second wild card, I loved it. I thought it was one of the great smart moves by baseball because it made the division races matter. This new format I do not like. And I made that clear a year ago, long before there were any results, long before the Mets got swept in a – three-game series by San Diego. Trust me, it has nothing to do with it. I do agree with Benji and probably most people listening. I don't like that there are more teams in the postseason. But what I said last year, and I stand by this, is if they were going to add playoff teams and they were going to have six teams in each league, there was a better way to do it. In my opinion, it was two divisions in each league with each divisional winner automatically Going to the divisional series as opposed to this NFL like format where two of the divisional winners get that bye and not all of them. Like the Cardinals won the division last year, they didn't get a benefit. So I disagreed with it, but it's here. So we have to talk about it. Uh, When we do the next Rico coming up in a few days, we'll go deeper into this roster and why I think it's going to be so difficult for Beatty Alvarez Vientos to make this team and we'll make officially our roster prediction before they play any spring training games. We'll make our 26 man roster predictions. We'll do that coming up on the next Rico. And then before you know it, we're going to have games to react to. Even if they're fake games, it's really going to be us talking about the rules, watching them happen and reacting to it. So we got a lot coming up on the Rico. We appreciate all your emails, the Rico B at gmail.com. Anytime you have a thought, you could obviously tweet at us as well and download Rico Bronia at the Odyssey app or wherever you download podcasts, wherever you do that. We appreciate it. Pete's going to be with Tiki and Tierney all week at 10 a.m. Craig is back, me and him, 2 o'clock on the fan. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.